Welcome to this episode of the Middle Market Growth Conversations podcast. I'm Katie Mulligan, Editor-in-Chief of ACG's magazine, Middle Market Growth. My guest today is Frank McGrew, a managing partner with McNally Capital, which, which provides direct investing and merchant banking services to companies and family office investors. Frank joined me on the podcast several weeks ago to discuss Opportunity Zones, which were included as a provision in the 2017 Tax Cuts and Jobs Act with the potential to benefit low-income communities as well as investors. Since we last spoke, the U.S. Treasury Department released some new guidelines, so Frank is back to discuss those updates. Frank, thanks for joining me on the podcast. Katie, my pleasure. Thanks for having me back. So for anyone who's new to the concept of Opportunity Zones, I would recommend listening to the interview that we taped in late October. But for context, can you just give a quick high-level overview of what an Opportunity Zone is? Absolutely. So Katie, late last year, as part of the Tax Cut and Job Act, there was a little-known provision that allowed state governors to designate specific communities as Opportunity Zones. In essence, using census tracts, about 25% of each state was potentially eligible for qualification to receive special benefits. Uh, From an investor's perspective, they have the ability to defer capital gains, reduce some of those capital gains, and also if they hold investments over 10 years or longer, they have the ability to qualify for tax forgiveness. Mm So from a community standpoint, there are tremendous benefits that now will invite capital to come into some of those communities that might not otherwise receive commercial capital for development and other sources of funding. So it's a win-win for a uh, set of investors, but also for the local communities to provide that community impact benefit. Hmm. And so what has changed since our last conversation about Opportunity Zones? Well, I I think one thing that we learned a few weeks ago, the Treasury qualified in uh, October that the majority of the benefits that we thought were favorable will indeed continue to be favorable Mm -hmm. for investors. That those census tracts that were designated and those various stakeholders are poised to realize some of those economic development uh, and also receive an influx of capital. Since we, we last saw you, some of the highlights that we're particularly excited about. One is just how simple it will continue to be to qualify for Opportunity Zone treatment as the example was provided by the Treasury. Hmm. And the last time that we spoke, you were of the mind that OZs were quite favorable for investors and developers and that they could also provide meaningful impact to local communities. Has your thinking on that changed at all? I think it's been strengthened uh, since even the short period that we last got together, the number of inquiries that we've received just within the family office universe has continued to overwhelm us. Hmm. The number of projects that are being presented by real estate owners and real estate developers continues to increase. And what I've been encouraged by are the number of people that are now forming steering committees so we can better assess and monitor that community impact in terms of uh, the guidelines and the social responsibility. While the act does not specifically quantify requirements, many of the investors and the other community advocates are working with the institutional investment community to put in place 
their own guardrails just to better help this project provide the benefits that it was intended to provide. Hmm. And I want to ask about the clarifications that came out recently from the Treasury Department. So to start, can you talk about how to file? Well, one of the the forms that we talked about last time was the simple form of disclosure. In, in effect, a recipient would be able to file a form and attach it to their tax return, similar to the way that they do gains and losses today. So it's a very simple one-page form. It's not a very complicated uh, process and or document. Hmm. And then what about the 180-day rule? I understand that was part of the new guidance that came out. Well, there's a lot of scrutiny around the timing and aspects of qualifications. In in essence, to qualify, a taxpayer must generally invest in a qualified opportunity zone fund within the 180-day period following the date of the sale or the exchange that triggered the capital gain. So while while that hasn't been changed, there was a, a fair amount of qualification around when the clock starts, when... Uh, it stops. So we got a little Mm -hmm. more guidance on that. We're not totally complete yet. Mm -hmm. And also on the topic of timing, the 10-year period, I know something was was something that investors were watching closely. One of the things that the original guidance failed to clarify was if you make an investment in 2019 and then you hold that investment for the entire 10-year period, do you have to monetize the asset exactly on the last day of the 10-year period, or can you hold that longer? There was a lot of ambiguity. One thing that they did qualify by the Treasury is that now, as long as the election is made before December 31st of 2047, that gives investors a longer holding horizon and a much generous uh, period to hold an investment So hypothetically, if there was an economic downturn or there Hmm. was some unforeseen delay in a project, you'd not be forced to qualify for that hardship sale. You now have more flexibility on when you control the timing of your monetization. Interesting. And then can you also talk about the, the working capital safe harbor? When the, the tax regulations were first released, one of our concerns was how to manage the timing of inflows and outflows within that 180-day period. So if you had a, a large capital gain of $100 and you wanted to invest in a qualified opportunity zone, would you have to put all $100 to work within 180 days? Or would you have the ability to stretch out your investment over time? Hmm. They qualified that with a written plan and with a written schedule and four projects that are designated qualified opportunity zones, within that zone, you now have the ability to invest that capital within a 31-month period following your original investment. So it's, again, giving you more flexibility as an investor and as a developer giving you the certainty that capital will be available, but only will be able to draw down when you need it, Hmm. rather than all in the front end. And one of the updates that I thought was really interesting was the 90-70 rule. Can you describe what that looks like? 
There's been a lot of talk about this as it relates to making investments into operating companies, which uh, from a private equity practitioner, we're all quite excited. If you can find a good trader business within one of these zones and you have a long-term uh, holding horizon, it really matches up quite nicely. The way that the 90-70 rule works is that at least 90% of the qualified opportunity zone funds must be designated and must be deployed in a qualified opportunity zone property. So it needs to be specific. And then the 70% relates to the fact that 70% of your tangible property or of your uh, assets need to reside in the zone. So for example, if you have a multi-location business, your headquarters needs to reside in an opportunity zone. You could have some satellite offices. You could have smaller branch facilities that physically are located outside of the zone. Hmm. But there's also a, another requirement that 50% of the revenue needs to be derived from within that zone as well. So if, if you remember from before, there's a, a lot of flexibility as to the types of businesses that can exist in these zones, but it tends to work best for those that are specific and that are quantifiable operating within a zone. So if it's a uh, data services business or some type of a cloud-based business and all your assets reside in the zone and you have customers in that area, that's a natural fit of what would qualify. Hmm. So those were some of the updates, and I should say we'll we'll put a, a link on our website to a full list that uh, McNally Capital has outlined in its white paper. So listeners who want to get some more information will have that up on the site. So Frank, what happens next for the regulations? What do we know about the time frame for when these rules will go into effect? Well, the, the time frame that we know is that the next milestone is that the Treasury and the IRS are hosting a hearing for further comment and simplification of some of these questions on January the 10th of 2019. Up until that point, there is a request for comment period, uh, at least at McNally and many of us following this, we've submitted our questions and areas where we'd like to have further uh, qualification or mm. defined rules from the Treasury. I, I think beyond that, you are already starting to see some of the qualified opportunity zone funds created. They tend to relate mostly to specific assets that are simple in form. They're not as complicated as a overall fund might be. Some of the more larger pools of capital and the institutional investor vehicles, I don't think you'll see those, Katie, until mm -hmm. 2019. Okay. I, I think sometime in late January or in February, once people have more comfort and another set of guidelines are released, you'll really start to see the capital flow clearly by the end of Q1 2019. Hmm. And what are you and your team seeking in, in way of additional guidance at the Treasury's January hearing? Well, there's a number of things that we would like to have clarified so we don't violate any of the rules. Uh, first of all, as I alluded to earlier, you have the ability to deploy capital over time as long as it's subject and documented in a written plan and according to a written schedule. 
Hmm. There's a lot of ambiguity as to how we would define that or how we would document that if there was an audit, for example. That's number one. Hmm. Uh, There's a lot of unknowns related to how to qualify and calculate leverage and debt related to partnerships in these Qualified Opportunity Zone funds. Three, the definition of substantial improvement, original use, substantially all. There's, there's quite a few adjectives that the Treasury has left open for debate hmm. that we'd like to test with some further examples at that hearing that I referenced in January. And, and I think there's this concept of reasonable period that the IRS and the Treasury have asked us to adhere to but there's no bright line qualification or criteria as to how to define that. Huh. And I would say that the most important unknown for all of us is if you fail to adhere to any of those things, how will they quantify and calculate the penalties? Uh. If you violate one of these tenants, will the penalty track all the way back to the time of the first sale? Is there some grace period for forgiveness. Hmm. There's just a lot of uncertainty that I think the magnitude of capital that could be deployed here would like to see before they dive headfirst into some of these larger projects. Hmm. Interesting. And are there any other takeaways for investors or any other important considerations related to opportunity zones that are on your mind? I think we remind our clients and our co-investors of a couple things. Uh, Number one, don't let taxes cause you to chase bad deals or don't let a tax decision uh, enable you or sway you to do something just for that reason alone. Mm -hmm. Two, I think now's the time to get familiar with Opportunity Zone assets as well as operating companies. Take a look within your portfolio or take a look as you do diligence on assets if you might benefit as a purchaser or if there's other property owners that might receive a benefit under this program. Hmm. Uh, Three, do you anticipate large capital gains and what are your redeployment options? Could you take advantage of this program in terms of that 180-day timing that Mm -hmm. I talked about? Uh, Four, I think it's imperative, given the complexity of these uh, rules, to rely on experts. Experts Mm. that are accountants, experts that are lawyers, people that really have taken the time to understand this program. And and I think five, it's more of a ability to remain vigilant to where the opportunity zone could be applicable to you, Mm. either as an investor or as an owner of an asset in one of these so-called quality qualified opportunity zones. So it sounds like a lot of it is not using these OZs as an entirely new strategy, but how do they work into what you're already doing? Correct. It's a tremendous enhancement to help investors shield or defer some of their capital gains, but also it's a ability for the communities to receive capital that otherwise might not get capital on a fairly favorable basis. Hmm. Well, it'll be interesting to, to see what happens following the January hearings. So we'll have to catch up with you then. Frank, thanks for joining me on the podcast. Katie, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to this episode of Middle Market Growth Conversations. 
Subscribe to the podcast in the iTunes store where you can listen to past episodes and hear the next episode in two weeks. While you're there, we'd love if you could rate the show and leave a review to help listeners find out about us. After you've rated the podcast, head over to our website, middlemarketgrowth.org, for more stories about successful mid-sized companies and middle market M&A.